Mets fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Get Metsmerized podcast, presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Sal Manzo, and I'm joined once again this week by MMO Associate Editor Patrick Glynn. Patrick, is, is there anything new we could talk about today? Uh, immediately, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 30 minutes or so something happens, because uh, if anything goes up the rate it did Friday night, we'll be getting news every couple minutes. Absolutely. And as we all know, Mets fans, it was a busy Black Friday for Steve Cohn and Billy Epler as they spent nearly $130 million in just one day, highlighted by center fielder Starling Marte. Patrick and I take a look at the three new Mets and what impact we think they'll make on the Mets offense, as well as how these signings could impact Javi Baez's potential return to Queens. And as the Mets will likely now shift their attention to the pitching market, we'll discuss who's a better long-term investment, Kevin Gosman or Marcus Stroman for the Mets. Patrick and I give our thoughts on that, as well as dive into a few other names on the free agent starting picture market we think could be a fit in Queens. And finally, Patrick and I look at what this Mets free agent frenzy means for the likes of Dominic Smith, J.D. Davis, and Jeff McNeil. Well, obviously, we've got a lot to get to, Patrick, so let's jump right into it. Mets, uh, like I said, had a busy Black Friday, signed three quality players. I want to get your thoughts on them, man. Uh, well, those three players, Eduardo Escobar first, and then Mark Canha, and then Starling Marte. They all came out within about six hours of each other on, on Friday night. It was really exciting. It was, uh, you know, Eduardo Escobar signed, and and I think that was kind of like, I, I think people like to kind of judge the moves on like, a, like as soon as it happens, like people, you know, two years, 20 million, they're just like, oh, is he going to be a glorified Jonathan VR? Something like that. But then the next move comes out like two hours later. And then Marte kind of caps the night off as the day turned to Saturday. All three are incredibly solid signings, I think. MLB trade rumors actually basically nailed all the salary projections for what they were going to get. So it didn't seem like they really overpaid for anybody. Honestly, but once you kind of see the three groupings of players, they honestly look like a mesmerized comment section. Like, <laughs> like at least in terms of like offensive players, it kind of just looked like a dream list of like what some people wanted. All of them are going to play in their age 33 season, which basically makes them the three oldest players on the Mets outside of a Robinson Cano, who will actually get regular playing, uh, you know, but these three guys will get regular playing time. We'll see if Robinson Cano kind of stays on the team. But I, again, I think they're great signings. They kind of fill a lot of holes that they need. And all of them have some level of versatility to where they can go out and sign someone else who might not have that same level of versatility, you know, and they can just kind of plug those players into other spots. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, Everyone was pretty surprised, I guess, with how the offseason started, just the chaos of the general manager search and just kind of especially the last week or so with some starting pitchers falling off the market. Seemed like the Mets were kind of sitting on their hands and people were, were you know, a little nervous, myself included. Steve Cohen and company, they, they came out swinging Friday. You know, I really, really like the Escobar signing. I think, like you said, especially for all three players, I think the versatility there is key. They want guys who could play multiple positions. 
depending on, you know, lengthening the lineup out and that sort of thing. I thought for Escobar, the two years, 20 million was a great deal. No, it was originally ported two years, 25 and wound up getting him for five mil cheaper. I love a deal over here. So that's great. Canna, I think spells probably definitely the end for Michael Conforto. It seems like not that they're the same level of player. I'm not saying that, but obviously with that signing, he's a guy that could play all three outfield positions. We know that right field's, you know, vacant at the moment. So that kind of seems like, you know, the end of Michael's tenure here. Canna's interesting. Mike Mayer, who uh, not here today, but noted not bashing him or anything like that, but Canna who is considered, you know, his main strength is an on-base guy. On-base percentage has gone down the last three seasons. So hopefully that's something that he can kind of fix, but, you know, solid player. And then obviously end of the night, couldn't sleep after that. You know, it was around midnight, Met signed Stolly Marte, you know, crown jewel of the day, but really excited. I know, you know, these guys, like you said, are all in their thirties, but someone like Marte, a real center fielder, especially for the right now, may not be playing center field the last year or two of that deal. But for right now, he's a quality defensive center fielder. He brings much needed speed, much needed average hitter, someone, you know, who can get on base a lot as well. And that can change the lineup. So I think overall, some solid good moves to the Mets. Yeah. And uh, to a couple of your points there with Canha and his, his OBP, like it, it was still like, it was like 360 last year. Like that's still a good number. And if he can kind of play to that number still over the next two years, that's Wonderful. And honestly, in terms of defense, I'm really not worried about any of these guys. I don't think any of them are like star, like above average defenders. But I think something that the Mets proved last year is that they vastly improved in terms of defensive positioning and generally where they can kind of plug and play people. I think people were terrified to have Brandon Nimmo start the year in center field and play center field throughout the year. And then with the help of Ben Zosmer, who kind of leads the analytics department now, helped a ton in terms of his positioning in center field, how deep he plays. So even with someone like Escobar, who you, they really just need a level of competency at third base. I assume he's going to be playing third base. And the same thing with Canha. Like, it'll be interesting to honestly see where they kind of place all three. I think Nimmo, you can get the most out of Nimmo, probably in one of the corners, probably left field. And left field was actually the Mets' overall defensive worst position last year because of Dominic Smith was playing 130, 140 games there, and he's a first baseman. So I'm not really all that concerned with any player, uh, just based on the analytical department really helping out in that end. They've, they made incredible strides on that end. And again, I think it's largely because of someone like Zosmer. The Dodgers are incredibly well known for many things, one of them being, you know, kind of getting the most out of their defensive guys. And Zosmer came from the Dodgers. So honestly, defensively, I'm not really worried about anybody or like, you know, if you want to kind of look into their outs above average or their, or their defensive run saves numbers, you know, those are still, you know, slightly flawed statistics. But as long as you can have like competent players at each position, I think their bats are a plus. No, definitely. And, you know, you know, one thing as far as what you're saying I'm really excited to see Brandon Nimmo slot to, I think, left field as well. I think that, not that, again, I actually was surprised as well last year's uh, defensive center. I think especially second half, it improved a lot. But I think to maximize his, you know, offensive abilities and get the most out of him, keeping him healthy too. And especially I know last year he started stealing bags a little more, trying to get a little more of the speed in there. I think playing left is great for him. And like you said, for the Mets, you get somebody who's competent finally in that spot that somebody's not playing out of position, like someone, you know, Dom Smith, who's been playing out there last couple of years out of position. So I think that's great. Yeah, that's that's a good point in terms of his health. He'll probably be moving around a lot less over in one of the corners. He'll probably be placed over in left field just because I mean, his arm isn't exactly, you know, stellar. It's not Johnny Damon level, but, you know, he's not Aaron Judge or something like that out there either. Honestly, I'm just really excited to see what these guys can do 
to just really elevate the offense. I assume Brandon Nimmo will still lead off. I mean, I guess we have to kind of, we still have to see who's going to manage the team and, you know, we'll see what level of input they have. It really seemed like last year going into the year, for whatever reason, they didn't want to bat Nimmo lead off because that's how it was on opening day. And then they very quickly realized we can't have Kevin Pillar starting every day and batting lead off. And then they did. And Nimmo performed really well when he was healthy again. But I got a couple of numbers here because the Mets were obviously really, really bad at scoring runs last year. And they were especially bad at scoring runs with people in scoring position. They were absolute last in RBI with runners in scoring position. And they were overall, overall, they were bottom five in runs scored, doubles, triples, homers, all that kind of stuff. They were about middle of the pack in terms of on-base percentage, just because, again, they had guys like Conforto and Nemo who were walking a lot. But overall last year, the Mets slugged 370, which I believe was just about dead last which really is a really terrible number. And overall, their OBP was 705 with runners in scoring position. Every person that they just signed either slugged or had an OBP of at least 50 points higher than that for their careers. So this is like they've been doing this for a really long time. Marte especially. Marte hits almost 300 running runners in scoring position. I would be surprised if he's going to kind of consistently play in like a like a second or third spot in the lineup. Probably the second because Nibbo just kind of gets on base more than him and he obviously thrived in that leadoff spot. But I'm just really excited that, that, that like they have guys who have have shown like real competency with runners in scoring position and in a bit higher leverage situations. Because last year, as soon as one or two people didn't, really the whole team struggled with it. Lindor was actually pretty decent in high leverage situations after the first month or two. And so was Pete. But like beyond that, they really did not have any people to like knock in the runs. No, absolutely. And that is music to my ears because I'm one of those people that has killed me, especially was 2020 and 2021. Uh, we actually, Mike and I talked to Tim Healy about this a few weeks ago, uh, you know, in particular, just their offensive struggles. And I brought up the fact that in particularly how bad they are with runners in scoring positions the last couple of years. And it's funny, you know, to your point, I know Billy Epler made the point in his press conference talking about how, you know, he's particularly looking for hitters that have plans in the batter's box, right? I know he said that specifically. And I think these three guys, especially Stalling Marte, fits that bill. You know, it's music to my ears. I'm really excited for that, you know, for, for to see some guys that can, you know, put the ball in play, move runners over, drive guys in that again, have that plan. So I think there's a, you know, a nice basis here for, to, you know, change the lineup in that respect. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and Marte's, uh, you know, I, I should say Canha, especially he's incredibly selective at the plate. He has a pretty high walk rate and he also has a pretty high, like, like swing and miss rate or pretty low swing and miss rate, I should say, uh, high in terms of his rankings and how good he is with that. So he makes a lot of contact, and he has a power upside as well. Coming to City Field, we'll kind of see how really the power for each of these guys translates. I mean, Eduardo Escobar is a guy who hit, you know, 30-plus home runs each of the last two years. When Escobar went to uh, the Brewers last year, he went from the Diamondbacks to the Brewers at the trade deadline. I, when I was writing one of the stories up, he he had like a five, between 5 and 6% home run rate with Arizona. And that's a very Homer happy ballpark that dropped in half. Once he went to Miller park, I think it's still called Miller park. And, Oh, it's not. What's it called? I forget the name, but they did change it to this season. But as far as you and I are oh, concerned, yeah. it's still Miller park. That's <laughs> still to us outsiders. Yeah. So, but, but it dropped in half, but the, the positive sign is slugging still high, still hitting doubles. It's not like he was like, you know, Homer or, or bust really a lot of these guys are going to have to be kind of gap to gap guys. Cause really, for whatever reason, last year, City Field just kind of like zapped the power uh, out of people. It was a really tough park to hit homers in. I agree with you. I and mean, historically, City Field overall has been a tough park to hit in. I mean, we, we saw mm-hmm. 
you know, if we want to really go back, that park was made for someone named Jose Reyes when it was built. And then ownership let him walk away and then ruined their franchise third baseman's career, probably from a power standpoint. I've said it before on the podcast, you know, there's a reason why Michael Conforto is probably leaving and other players may be at points where scared to come here because City Field is a bit of a barren wasteland as far as power is concerned. It's proved to be that so far, you know, as as a tenure as a stadium. And I feel, you know, said it before, pitching speed and defense is what's going to get the Mets. I feel long-term success. Now, obviously you need guys in your lineup that can pop. Obviously we understand that, but being too feast or famine, too home run heavy, I think we've seen, you know, even in years when the Mets are successful, you know, sometimes that well runs out and you need, you know, more balanced lineup. And to your point, as far as with the, you know, the guys, the Mets, you know, signed on Friday, the power may not be there as much, but again, if these are professional hitters with plans, I don't need them to hit, you know, 25 plus home runs. If they're hitting 15 to 20, but driving in 80, 90, you know, 80, 90 runs, and especially, you know, driving runners in late in games in that scenario, that's all I can really ask for. You know, the, the Gordy numbers are great, but it's about winning ball games and, and scoring runs. And hopefully like these guys can, can transcend the lineup in that regard. Yeah. So I, you'll, you'll have Pete's always going to hit home runs at city field, but I, I think the first half of the year, he only had one home run at home, but that corrected itself in the second half of the year. The same thing with Lindor is he was just not hitting home runs, but then he had that three home run game against the Yankees. And then the last month he had nine home runs in the entire month. People like them will always find out how to hit home runs. So like, it's, it's great if like, you know, Escobar, Marte, Canha, you know, can hit between 15 and 30 home runs across the whole season. But really, like, like you said, it's kind of like really just getting guys on base and keeping, keeping the lineup moving to getting to the big boppers. No, definitely. And, you know, one person I wanted to talk about now, kind of in particular, uh, as we mentioned, is Javi Baez. You know, I wanted to see what you think now. Do these signings impact uh, Baez, you know, coming back at all? I know we saw the price tag now for Javi. The, I heard like six for 200 million. I think that's pretty steep at this point, but I'm assuming that's a shortstop number, maybe not the second base number. But, you know, I just wanted to see what you thought as far as especially with Escobar's versatility playing all over the infield. McNeil can still play second base. I just want to see what you think now if this diminishes the chances or doesn't change it or anything like that as far as bringing bodies back. I saw uh, there was a Twitter user. His name is Doug. He's really smart. His handles FTLO baseball. And after these signings, he made a very valid point that at this point, it might be they might be choosing between Jeff McNeil and Javi Baez, because defensively, obviously, Javi Baez is out of this world. But offensively, I'm like, whose upside is obviously if, if Javi Baez can display this sort of plate discipline, he can across five years, his offensive upside is higher. But the last two months you know, at this point, see more of an anomaly than the rest of his career has shown. So offensively, if you had to choose between the two and you're going to pay one of them two and a half million and the other one, maybe 25 million or something like that, that's really an interesting choice to, to weigh, especially when they, you know, I know we'll get to this in a minute, when you want to spend a lot more money on the starting pitcher market. Really, it seems like the Mets want to build this team this season through signing people. They want to spend a lot of money and they really aren't interested in trading any of their top prospects. I don't think that these signings ultimately affect that. I think Baez will really affect that himself. I think if his price comes down to like something reasonable, Tim Britton wrote something earlier in the off season that was basically kind of projected him around like a 22 uh, average annual value with a contract. If he can do that over four or five years and wants to stay with the Mets and wants to stay with Lindor, I think the Mets would 100% hop on that. But if he wants to get paid like a shortstop who's playing second base, 
then it might just be okay to stick Jeff McNeil there, no matter the double play combo of Lindor and, uh, and, and McNeil, maybe not surviving another year. <laughs> well, you know, real quick before we move on to the starting pitcher market, I did want to ask you real fast, how much do you think Lindor plays a part as far as like who he wants his double play partner to be up the middle? And I know him and, you know, McNeil had that little scuffle beginning of the year, the raccoon thing. I don't really care about it, but you know, I know he's buddies with Baez. I just wonder how much that might, you know, play a part in it as well. Yeah, I, Dilip, he's a writer for MMO. He made a really good point that Lindor's not LeBron. <laughs> Lindor, I don't think Lindor is making kind of executive decisions like that. As much, I mean, like Lindor's attached to this team for ten years. He's not. It, it's not going to be a scenario where he's going to force his way out of New York or something like that if Javi Baez doesn't come in. I mean, could they be on the one yard line and maybe Francisco Lindor kind of either gives you know Javi a nudge or gives Steve Cohen a nudge? I think there's a possibility there, but in terms of like Lindor being like, you have to bring him in or else, or else, or something like that, that that's not a scenario. I think that's going to happen. Ultimately what it's going to come down to is, is, is just getting decent value out of him. I think a lot of people have said that Javi Baez's bat really doesn't project very long. Um, Mike Petriello, uh, I should say career-wise, doesn't like, you know, doesn't trend very well, you know, going on. Mike Petriello wrote a really good article about Javi Baez's bat speed when it comes to hitting fastballs in a fastball-heavy league that doesn't trend very well. And McNeil is someone who can hit fastballs very well. And I really think at this point, his value is the absolute lowest that it possibly could be. Lord knows why that happened. Maybe it was kind of the pressure of playing next to Lindor, especially after their dust up earlier in the season. So, you know, it it remains to be seen. Who knows? By the end of the podcast, they could have signed Javi Baez. But I don't I don't think these signings will have them completely out on Baez. I think that might give them a little bit more leverage and be like, hey, we have all these guys. We're going to sign you for this much. No, definitely. And I think, you know, another factor too, just moving off to another ex-cub, Chris Bryant, real quick. I, you know, I think the signing of Escobar still gives them that flexibility to bring Chris Bryant to play third base. Cause re- you know, ideally you can move Escobar to second base either way. I actually feel as though they're going to sign an infielder, whether it's one of bias Bryant or maybe even a Kyle Seeger to play third to round it out. You can still put Escobar at second. And I, I feel as though Canna and McNeil are going to be the platoon right fielders for the Mets um, in 2021. That's just my opinion. You know, it's interesting. I, again, I, I keep going back to these signings and especially on the infield with Escobar. And I think it still gives them flexibility to do some stuff. So that'll be uh, interesting to see what, goes on but i wanted to pivot from you know sort of the position players free agents to now the starting pitcher market obviously we know the mets uh have like a half a starting pitcher at this point so they got to fill the like the whole rotation um but is that the half of jacob jagram's ucl that's that's healthy yeah is that the half of yeah the, one, <laughs> and, and the half that they left in the first five on eyes but anyway yeah <laughs> i know that the mets have obviously uh been linked to kevin gosman at this point Obviously, Marcus Stroman is a name that, you know, the Mets are going to look to bring back as well. Just wanted to talk to you just kind of long term. Who do you think would, you know, there's other guys out there, but between those two, who do you think is like the better long term investment? The long term investment is is Marcus Stroman. I don't think there are many people who kind of really doubt that. It's kind of crazy if you go look at um, Marcus Stroman's expected statistics you know, just between like his ex-FIP and his ex-ERA, they're basically identical for his whole career. And even this year when he kind of pitched to like, a, you know, in the high twos, like his ex-ERA was still kind of in the, in the, uh, you know, in the mid to high threes, but that kind of just shows what a good defense will do for someone like Stroman who kind of likes to keep the ball on the ground. So long-term, especially if he has a defense behind him, I think Marcus Stroman is probably the better long-term play. The other side of it is too, I think the upside of someone like Kevin Gosman who showed what he can do over the first, you know, four or so months this year, 
I should say of 2021, if you can get two or three really, really, really good Kevin Gosman seasons and maybe kind of two underwhelming seasons, I might take that, especially if you're kind of, if Kevin Gosman at that point is your number two behind a healthy Jacob DeGrom. Interesting. You know, I, I kind of feel the opposite as far as like who, who I think has the higher ceiling, just for the fact that it's twofold. You know, I think Gosman's been a guy that has been very more peaked than value in his career over the last couple of years. It's been, you know, peak obviously, but as I guess a weary Mets fan, you know, I worry about paying someone in a career year and we kind of know what happens sometimes. Guys come here, they lose their powers. They lose their will to survive. I mean, it all falls out the window. So he's someone that just out of maybe PTSD, I would be a little worried to give a long-term investment to after just, and now he's had, you know, he had a good year in Atlanta a couple of years ago where that kind of really, I think was the, the bouncing off point, you know, besides this year, obviously with the Giants. But, you know, I, I think, you know, even with, with Marcus, I know it's not a lot of high velo stuff and things of that nature. Proven he could pitch in New York. He wants the ball every fifth day. And I think more than, and I've said it before, I think the fact that he pitches every fifth day, even on a win now team, that's a commodity. That's why Steven Matz got paid like $10 million a year now to be a number five starter because he showed he can pitch a little bit now as far as getting, you know, deep into a season. So, you know, that's kind of where, where I look at it. You know, you may be right as far as the upside goes, because I know Gosman split is one of the best out there and maybe they can hone that, you know, even more come to a team with Jacob DeGrom and, uh, you know, their pitching coach, maybe they could take him, you know, even to a bigger level, you know, as far as the safer bet. And I think that's what the Mets need in the rotation at this point for someone that could pencil in for 30 plus starts. I think that dude's Marcus Stroman. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And the, you know, we can't talk about Marcus Stroman right now without talking about a couple of his tweets from Saturday. Uh, I think Friday or Saturday, basically expressing that he has kind of come to terms that that the Mets front office values someone like Gosman or Max Scherzer that, you know, we haven't really talked about who kind of I think the Mets have an outside shot of getting. Yeah, I I don't think we can go by without mentioning uh, Stroman's tweets. No, I agree with you. And I, I, I know it's tweet you're talking about, I think. And then he replied to say that he was the source that he was talking about. <laughs> yes, I mean, we know yeah. how he is on Twitter, whatever. You know, I don't want to get into that too much. But also, I think to me, that might be more guy just motivating himself. You know, athletes are like that. You know, Michael Jordan was the best. The best. He'd make up stories about guys talking trash to him so we could just, you know, have a better game. You know, I think Stroman's like you know, a, a mental guy in the sense that he, you know, always likes to try and find an edge or a chip or something like that. So who knows if it's more of that than anything. The hard part with Strom is just like you said, there's just going to be so many suitors for him because of the durability. So, you know, yeah. we'll see what happens. You yeah, just don't, that- don't want to. Sorry about that. You just I also don't you don't want to sign Gosman first because you don't want to get bit by Strowman and then miss out sort of thing. That would, I guess, kind of be my only other take back to. Yeah, I, I was actually about to piggyback on that. But basically, my thought is, is that. Is that like, is Stroman going to, if let's say the Mets strike out on Scherzer and strike out on Gosman, then will Stroman kind of take that lack of interest at the beginning of free agency and, and, and thinking that there are kind of other guys above him or something like that? Would, would he take that as like a, or just like a, oh, you finally came to your senses kind of moment uh, and, and still kind of make dealings with the Mets? Because it, it really doesn't seem like Strowman's in any rush to sign whatsoever or will he kind of take that as like a hey you kind of clearly value these other guys you didn't get them and now you're kind of crawling back to me it's funny you say that you know Disha those are the New York Daily News we had her on last week and she made uh, an interesting point as far as that like the Mets haven't really wooed anybody like, you know, Marcus is someone that big free. They kind of were going to be wined and dined a little bit. You know, that that's the nature of the beast. And, you know, maybe things changed a little bit. Now, this was right before they made these three signings on Friday from what she was hearing and kind of even what Marcus was saying, Marcus was saying, like, 
Eric and Syndergaard as well, I think too, you know, there wasn't, they weren't really feeling that love. Like they weren't going out of their way to make them feel special and wanted. And I think someone like Marcus, I think you're very well right. That could impact things. Hopefully it's the other way. Maybe you'll think more you came to your senses, but you know, I guess we'll see. Right. Yeah. But like you said, I mean, like if they get any one of these guys, I think they're in halfway decent shape beyond that they will need a second starter. I know they've kind of been involved with talks with John Gray and stuff like that, but they're, if, if they get one of these guys, they're still going to need another guy. Absolutely. And that is good to where I wanted to pivot, you know, besides, you know, Gosman and Stroman, I wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on some other guys that are out there. Obviously there's a reigning AL side young award winner. That's still on the market. Robbie Ray, Carlos Rondon from the White Sox. He's on the market as well. John Gray, you mentioned is maybe, you know, as far as that second year pitchers, who are some other names that, you know, Let's say they, they miss out on the Scherzers and the, the Gosmans and maybe even the Stromans of the world. What about some of these other names? Do you think that could be a fit here? Well, well that's the problem is that it's the San Francisco Giants themselves seem to basically hop the like middle tier market themselves already because they resigned a lot of their own pitchers. Anthony DiSclefani, Alex Wood, they signed Alex Cobb to a one-year deal. And then I think that's why, you know, I know you guys, you know, might've briefly mentioned it last week in terms of Steven Matz and all that, but like, that's probably why the Mets were partly upset because they thought they were in on this kind of like middle tier market of, of pitchers and that they were able to kind of have that locked down and then they'd go out and sign, you know, a bigger name pitcher. And then that would really secure the the, the starting rotation. So the problem is, is that if they strike out on any one of these big names, is that there's really not a whole bunch left. And then you'll kind of have to start dipping into the trade market. Um, I kind of know we'll kind of talk about that in just a minute, but then you'll kind of have to look for the Sonny Grays of the world, maybe the the, the uh, Chris Bassett or the Sean Manias of the world with the Oakland A's, you know, and really you'll just kind of have to like find some value there. Yeah, no, that's interesting what you said. I think that's why everyone got so upset, you know, the last couple of weeks of so the Giants kind of, like you said, made a bunch of those moves and Everyone was kind of like, well, whoa, we thought we were going to like, you know, be able to do that first and then get to the big name. So that's funny. And I think it even goes to like, again, the fragility of starting pitching, you know, even these second tier guys, they feel like, you know, starting rotation depth is a huge thing now. And these better teams are the ones that have it. So, you know, interesting that they got scooped up there. You know, we'll see as far as, you know, the, the last thing I wanted to move on to. And like you said, as far as some trade pieces, specifically looking at Dominic Smith, J.D. Davis, and also we touched on it for a little bit, Jeff McBeal, but just kind of what this free agent frenzy means for, you know, for these three guys and, you know, who could we see moved and for, for what kind of thing? Well, uh, that kind of segues really nicely. Good job, Mr. Host, um, about Jeff McNeil. I mean, Jeff, Jeff McNeil, uh, Mike Mayer, who's the executive editor of MMO, who usually is on this podcast. Never heard um, of him. <laughs> he, uh, like Jeff McNeil probably has the best value of those three to trade for someone, but he's also the person who you don't want to trade because he has the most versatility of all the three. He obviously had a down year and has the most upside probably of all the three and has shown su- sustained success of all those three guys. All of them will obviously be playing a lot less if they're all on the 2022 roster than they did last year. Dom Smith, particularly, because I think we realized with Dom Smith that last year is that he's he really kind of struggles in an every single day player role. And that's okay, especially if you can find yourself in a niche market of starting 100 games in a year and getting 400 plate appearances rather than 650 plate appearances over 150 games. Like you can still succeed in that sort of role. And that's where 2020, Dom Smith played really well. I mean, he did really well in the really short spurt. And the same thing in 2019, he didn't play a lot. Granted, he was injured a little bit and then ended the year on the um, on that game-winning homer against the Braves. And then J.D. Davis, like, again, like, I think he started out really well, but he just he couldn't get his hand right. It would not surprise me if 
one or two of these guys are traded, probably closer to spring training than to now. But again, the problem is, is that we as, you know, our, the fan in us wants them to just kind of like maybe trade J.D. Davis and that's it. Probably because we might have a little bit more kinship with someone like Adam Smith, who's grown up in the organization, same with Jeff McNeil. But at the same time, too, like if they strike out on pitchers or if they strike out on relief guys and really can't sign those guys to contracts, like these are the exact kind of players that can get you something in return where you're not giving up anything in the farm. Um, you might be able to replace, you know, 300 J.D. Davis at bats with someone who's, you know, on the free agent market, and then they can kind of address the trade market that way. I mean, Billy, because Billy Epler was very upfront that they don't want to trade any of those top 100 prospects. And that includes Francisco Alvarez, uh, Ronnie Mauricio, Mauricio, Brett Beatty, uh, Mark Vientos. So it's like they really don't want to trade any of those guys, especially because they just traded Pete Crow Armstrong last year. I mean, they have maybe have kept one first round pick over the last couple of years. And it, just as an aside, that's see, that's actually what Brody Van Wagen and set up win now and win in the future looks like. It's not trading those top prospects, spending a lot to win now and then keeping those guys to win in the future. But anyway. All of this to say is that those are the three guys that'll probably get you to fill some pitching holes on your roster. You know, at least one or two of those guys will probably be able to get you someone decent in return, even if it is reliever, because that's not trading Jared Kellenick for an Edwin Diaz, you know, that's trading like a Dom Smith for, you know, a decent reliever that'll give you 60, 70 innings next year. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think as far as, you know, bolstering the bullpen, I think that's where it'll come from for the Mets, you know, a, because there aren't a ton of, uh, big relievers on the market that I can't think of. It's more starting pitching heavy, and that's where the Mets probably need to focus anyway for right now. Uh, but, you know, I do think it's J.D. JD Davis and or Dom Smith. I've said it before. I just don't think the Mets are going to trade Jeff McNeil for pennies on the dollar, even though out of the three, he's the most he'll get. The Mets probably don't want to get burned with him, you know, bouncing back somewhere else. And at the very least, he's someone that can still lengthen out the bench. And like I said, more in a platoon role, maybe with him and Cannon right field, McNeil hitting against righties, Cannon against lefties. It's, you know, a nice lefty-righty balance there. Could be something that would be good for him. And also maybe light a little fire like, hey, you know, what have you done for me lately? You know, 2019, you're an all-star. Now it's 2022 and, you know, you're a fringe guy. Doesn't mean you're not talented, but it means that things change. And, you know, you got to maybe get with the program. And I think that we heard that was a little bit of McNeil's problem last year, not really listening. Um, but, you know, as far as the guys I would keep, it's McNeil. You don't want to get burned there, but it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny how a couple of years can make three guys that you thought were, were locked dead cornerstone pieces. Now, you know, looking to maybe trying to, to flip them for some mediocre relievers. Funny how things change. Yeah, for real, man. It's, it's like, if the designated hitters is a thing, I think people like JD Davis and Dom Smith kind of have a lot more value there because defensively, they just like, they have people at all the kind of defensive positions that they can like halfway be decent at in the field, you know, so maybe there's something there, but again, we'll see if Robinson Cano comes back and if there's anything there, but yeah, I guess we'll kind of just have to wait and see with them because especially if they sign someone like Javi Baez and there's like, then there's just about no room for, for someone like JD Davis. It's just like, it's really hard to keep someone like that when they have no defensive position and you could just rotate a ton of people through the DH spot. And that it's funny you say that, especially with the DH role and in particular, you know, how Cano affects probably the future of Dom Smith, at least for this year, which really stinks because I don't think 
Cano's going to be on the team the year after. I think they'll eat that last 24 mil. Just, I think he would not be on the team this year if it wasn't for having to eat like 40 something million dollars, which I understand. I mean, that's unfortunate because I think if Cano wasn't here, Dom would, would probably fill that role guy off the bench that would spot DH against righties. Um, lower third of the order, he probably would thrive as that. Cause like you said, he's someone that seems to struggle playing every day. Who knows if because playing out of position, obviously he's more for, he's a first baseman by trade affects that. But in general, you know, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, something with Brody Van Wagen is continuing to, uh, you know, haunt the Mets, I guess, but nature of the beast. Yeah. And it'll, with regards to Cano, I, I think, I think the next two years, I think the Mets are going to at least clear 250 million in payroll. It's going to be interesting to see with how much they spend before a day like today, where they've already spent 124 million. It seems like they might shell out at least that for a, a, a top line starting pitcher. It'll be interesting to see what the competitive balance tax looks like in the next negotiation. I know MLB really wanted to reduce the competitive balance tax. I don't think Stephen Steve Cohen really like cares if it kind of reduces, but they wanted it to be 180 million, which would just be asinine. They would have, especially if it's with a salary floor of 80 million, you'd really be restricting teams to within this kind of like $100 million bracket, which I think would drive down players' salaries a lot, which honestly might be why a handful of players are signing now, because who knows what it's going to look like on the other side of it. But if the competitive balance tax kind of, if the rules kind of stay the same and it increases by a little bit each year, I think for the next two years, when the penalties aren't as harsh as a third year, that they're going to be spending a lot of money. And then maybe three years from now, you know, once Canha's contract is off the books, once Eduardo Escobar's contract, Cano's contract are all kind of off the books. That's when I think the Mets might kind of be a little bit more savvy kind of where they might trade a couple of prospects or something like that to kind of bring in cheaper deals or really rely on some of those prospects to, to then, you know, go ahead and thrive in, in spots that Canha and Escobar and Cano, well, maybe not Cano, were thriving in. No, it's interesting. And, and funny is because, you know, by two or three years, the I would sure the hope is that that young crop of core that the Mets have in the minors will be coming up now to, you know, to replace and now, you know, be, mm-hmm. be in the big league club. But, you know, it's it's interesting because I keep going back to, you know, what Epler said in the beginning as far as like building stability in the organization. And obviously, that's, you know, even in a win now mode, that starts in the minor leagues. And, you know, I know a lot of people laughed at kind of that Nick Plummer signing at the, at the beginning, like, you know, what the heck is this? Who the hell is that? But it's those kind of organizational depth signings that make you better. Obviously, you know, you don't want to see him and Khalil Lee playing a lot this year. That would mean things are very bad. But it's the point that you have those major, you know, fringe major league professional kind of players waiting in the wings, um, you know, to, to build triple A depth or whatever it is, makes guys better down there. And I think, you know, hopefully I know that was Epler's kind of thing is, you know, player development and that kind of, uh, you know, of the sort. So hopefully in, the, in a couple of years, we'll see that that improves. Yeah. Even among their top prospects, like if you just get someone like a Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez to hit and be like decent major leaguers playing on the same level as let's, well, let's hope that Francisco Alvarez is better than a James McCann. But like, if you can pay Francisco Alvarez less than a million dollars, as opposed to 12 and a half million, that three years from now will probably aid them in getting under a competitive balance tax um, rather than the next two years when it seems like they were realizing like we have a ton of money already on the books between Grom, Cano, handful of other guys. Like, so let's spend a lot in these two years. And then in that third year, maybe we'll kind of like, then we'll kind of start worrying getting under the competitive balance tax again, wherever that may be. 
Yeah, it's funny. Competitive balance tax. It's, this is major <laughs> baseball's answer. These contracts have gotten way out of hand. We didn't know how to stop it 10 years ago. So this is what we're going to do. I don't see how that plays. I don't know how the union would ever let that happen because you're not going to let future guys get less money. Now it's not how it works. They usually get more. So that'll be interesting. Uh, Uncle Rob Manford, you know, uh, making baseball great every day. Love him. But, uh, you know, you know, on the end of that, that's the show for this week. Hopefully nobody signs between now and then anymore today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll we'll keep you locked in for next week uh, as all the latest on the lockout and maybe more Mets news. Maybe we'll get a manager by then. We'll see. But uh, until then, folks, thanks for listening. And don't forget to get Mets memorized. Yeah,